rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Well, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Rumors of Grace. As always, this is Bob Hutchins. And uh, as I always say, I have a very special guest. I try, to, I try to curate the most interesting guests that I can, and we've got several of them coming up. Today is no different. Uh, today I have Mr. John Hill sitting across the silver table from me, and uh, he is a native of the area. A couple of episodes back, you heard a friend of mine who also happens to be a friend of my son's, Mr. Alex Ray, the young man who lives in China, who is from Nashville, who had a very fascinating story. He reached out to me and he said, Bob, you should reach out to John. He would be great on your podcast. And I said, I'm glad you reminded me. I haven't even thought about that. Uh, John Hill is from the area. Uh, I think that we're going to have some conversations about race, about growing up in a mixed family, mixed race family. We're going to have conversations about NASCAR, which he's passionate about. We're going to have conversations about flying airplanes, which he's passionate about. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having seen you probably in about a year. Um, a lot has changed and happened. You're a married man now. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Being married has definitely been a different pace, um, <laughs> to say the least, going from uh, being a bachelor to being married. So I loved it and have a little dog now. So it's it's quite fun. So you have a child. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it feels like that. Yeah, she's only four months old, so it's a little mm. Rottweiler. She's awesome. So. That's great. That's mm-hmm. great. Well, before we get into some topics and dive into the deep end of the pool, why don't you let the listeners know um, a little bit about your background? Where were you born? How, you know, grew up. Your siblings. I know you have several, and <laughs> yes. uh, just give me a little quick background about your life. Yeah. So my dad um, grew up in the projects in North Carolina, and my mom grew up in this little farming town in Kansas. Um, so two drastic you know, ways of coming up in America. They met in college and uh, my dad went to the military. And so I'm one of nine kids from my parents. And um, we, I think we moved like 20 some times Mm. while my parents were together. So every year or two, we were constantly on the move. So I was born in Kansas. Um, I like to claim that, but <laughs> I really didn't live there that long. Um, Go but Chiefs, I've, exactly, <laughs> Pat Mahomes. But um, but we have I've lived here the longest I've lived anywhere else. So um, yeah, that's that's a little bit of how we how got long going. have you how long have you lived in the Nashville area? We moved here in two thousand and two, so it's been gosh, it's almost been twenty years, which is crazy. Mm. Mm. So. And you're twenty seven. 28, 28, yeah. 28, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I know um, growing up, you're another one of those um, second sons. You were always around the house, growing, hanging out with my with my <laughs> son and me coaching soccer teams and all that oh, fun yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was always fascinated with your family because not only did you have so many siblings, but I mean, just to, to be blunt, you all looked so different. 
Like mm-hmm. some of you were blonde, some of you had afros, some of you. Yes. I mean, it was just fascinating to see your the the, the multi colors, uh, and it was beautiful and is beautiful of your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was always kind of crazy because walking down the street, <laughs> you know, obviously no one ever thought that we belonged to my dad or my mom. So they always ask, oh, like, you know, where did you adopt these certain kids from? And where, where did you adopt these kids from? And my parents are like, none of them are adopted. They're all ours. And That's so cool. So, yeah, some of us look a lot alike, and then some of the other ones look a lot alike to the other ones. So right. It's, uh, it's kind of divided down the middle. Did you enjoy having so many siblings growing up? Oh, yeah, I did. It was always fun because, I mean, we were always moving. So... Mm. We never got to have a lot of friends or like never got to create an environment where we felt stable in just because of my dad's job. And so having such a big family, like we're all so close still to this day because that's all we had. You know, if you Mm -hmm. were bored, you tell one of your brothers or sisters to come outside and play with you, you know. So and it it was hard too to make friends when you knew you were going to be leaving in like a year or two. So that was always like in the back of your mind, like this is only temporary. And so living, you know, your whole upbringing through that, it gets really hard to say, okay, this is permanent. Mm. And so it was very easy for me and my siblings to say, hey, if nothing else, siblings are permanent. And and so I think that's why we're so close. Did you live and move around mainly in the... Um south southeast or was it all over the country it was kind of all over country but two of my sisters were born in germany um so yeah basically like right when the berlin wall came down well my they moved over there before the berlin wall came down and then they stayed up until it you know after it fell so Mm -hmm. um they lived there for a little bit but i think germany was the only place outside of the united states that uh my parents lived Prior to divorce, yeah. Okay. So, you know, you said it was hard because you weren't sure how long you're going to be in one place. But but for you, being 28 and being in Nashville for 20 years, you feel like you had some stability, maybe different than some of your other siblings, right? Yeah, yeah. And, of course, your younger ones, this is all they've ever known. Right, yeah. So, you know, kind of we've lived here for that long but also we've like moved away and then come back and moved away and come back so you know i can't technically say i've like once we got here in 2002 we never left um that's not true but for the most part we've been here in nashville um so yeah i mean i have definitely been able to have i think after college i was finally able the end of high school start a college I think I would be able to say like this is when I definitely would say I would call it home because for the first year of my high school career you know we were in and out of foster care we were in Costa Rica then we got pulled back here so it was a quite of a Hmm. big deal and Um, why were you in foster care yeah so basically it was a really bad divorce um and uh it would it threw my mom through a really rough time. Hmm. Um, My parents were together for almost 30 years and my mom truly loved my dad. And, um, you know, 
we didn't know, you know, growing up in a, as a kid, you know, you don't ever really think about dynamic relationships and, you know, really, sure. do they really love each other? This, you know, it's like, Hey, that's my mom. That's my dad. Of course right. they do. You know? And so when it all just kind of came crashing down, I was 12 and my dad wasn't faithful to my mom. And that's been going on pretty much the whole time they were married. And, um, my mom, you know, ba basically, I don't want to get too far into it because sure. that's their story, but they had a really rough marriage. Sure. And r once, you know, my mom and my dad called it quits, uh, I think there was a lot in my mom that just broke because mm. um, that was my mom's dream was to have a big family, to have two parents that always loved their kids till the end. Mm. And that was very far from reality. Mm. And so when that, when she realized all that, um, she got involved in coping mechanisms that were not beneficial. And uh, we actually moved to, uh, we moved to Costa Rica and that was kind of like our hell on earth. Uh, you know, everyone talks about, you know, oh, well, me walking through the desert was this time or, you know, there's certain little aspects that, you know, however, or phrases that people would say. But for me, that was definitely the hell on earth uh, moment for us. I mean, there was five of my siblings there, including me. Um, three of them tried to commit suicide. Mm. One of them uh, was cutting themselves. Three of them had eating disorders. I mean, it was a really, really hard time. Um, and, you know, being 14, trying to figure out all this. And I was the oldest guy in the house. So basically, to make a long story short, um, we came back here. We got put in state system, uh, lived in the state system for about a year. And then we got put back with my mom. And at first, that was really hard um, for a couple various reasons um but i think that's the cool part if i could speak to not because i don't want to miss the heart of it mm -hmm. but the really cool part that i like to talk about now is the redeeming factors mm -hmm. because that's not everyone's story and not a lot of people get to see it come full circle and so i feel like when stories do come full circle it's really important to speak out on that mm -hmm. and so yeah, me and my mom have a great relationship now to this day. Uh, me and my dad really don't talk that much. Um, and uh, But it's been really cool to see my mom totally go back to what we always knew her as, which was a loving, caring, hmm, amazing mom. So that's been really cool. That's awesome. Well, fast forward. Um, what, what was your like, life like, um, you know, after that high school, college, um, was it all, was it all roses and up, up, up positive or w w what was that like for you? Yeah, I would say, you know, growing up was different for me. I started working, trying to help provide for my family when I was like 13. Mm. So the, you know, in my back of my head, even as a young boy, there was never this carefree high schooler who didn't worry about things, mm -hmm. you know, like at the end of the day I had... I was working trying to help provide for my family. Now, granted, too, like, 
you know, I was not the sole provider. I would never claim that, but I tried to do my part. Um, and then in college, that was hard initially just like leaving my family and going out and trying to do the college thing. Um, I'm severely dyslexic. So Mm. being in middle school, high school, college, you know, those are all really hard times for me. Um, but there was, I always knew that I had a strong work ethic. Yeah. And so, um, that just meant me getting up at 6am when everyone else was asleep and reading and making sure I understood, you know, all the material a couple different times. Um, and I got through college and, you know, that was such a big moment for me because I think right when we, cause we were homeschooled up until the divorce. And so in eighth grade or seventh grade, um, I finally went to school and, you know, they do the test of, you know, right. where the kids are at and all that. My reading and comprehension level was at a kindergarten's mm. level. Um, and then I think in high school, uh, in, yeah, when I was a freshman, it was at a fifth grade level. Mm. Um, but I always knew, too, okay, if that's the case, I just need to spend more time than anyone else. So I, ha- I don't know how, but I actually graduated high school in three years. Um, because high school was a rough time for me and college I enjoyed way more. Sure. Um, just cause I, I think, you know, people are a little bit more mature. You can find, uh, I think people who, and, and honestly too, that's where me and Riley got mm-hmm. super close was in college. I mean, sure. high school for sure. We were close, but college, I would say we really became like really good friends. Um, and you know, college is this awesome experience where you do get to find, you know, people who, who you connect with, who you vibe with, you know, whereas like high school can be way more clicky and, you know, the dynamics I think are a little bit trickier. Yeah. But no, I totally that was my get experience. It. Yeah. That's, that's great. Um, all right, let's fast forward. I want to get into a lot of different things. Oh yeah. But let's fast forward to 2020 today. You mm-hmm. know, it's a crazy world we're living in and, yeah. um, we're all kind of going through it. And, you know, I've had some guests on the show, you know, just kind of trying to unpack and honestly trying to root out in myself and identify um, areas of, of of racism and areas of, of things that and seeing things through other people's eyes that maybe, you know, people um, like myself have not really seen or taken the time to see. And I want to see those things. So for you, you know, given your background, your upbringing, everything you've been through, you and mm-hmm. your siblings and you individually... Um, what, what has been going through your mind as you saw George Floyd, as you, mm-hmm. you know, deal with the whole Black Lives Matter and the controversy around all that, right. and the violence and the, the peaceful protest and the violent protest, and just there's just so many things that are circulating and swirling around in our world today. What's, what's some of the things that, that, that you, A, you identify with? Um, just unpack that with me, if you would. Yeah, so... I'll probably kind of go about it or answer that question on a roundabout way. Yeah, please. Just to provide some context to your listeners from a mixed person. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm not just African-American. I'm not just Caucasian. So uh, I think I first experienced race or color. Um, 
I noticed it when I was three years old. Hmm. My mom, uh, it was, you know, simple exercise. Again, like I said, I was always getting up earlier than everyone else because my mom knew something was not right with me as far as like I wasn't reading or comprehending as fast as like all my other brothers and sisters. So they always got me up earlier to like work one on one with me. My mom did. And so it was in the morning and she had to we had to stop reading and, you know, she had to make breakfast. And so she said, hey, you know, just color a picture or, you know, draw a person, color the picture and then bring it back to me when you're done. Mm. And so I drew an outline of a person, you know, drew the shirt. I don't know what color, the pants, whatever else. But I got to the skin color. And I just remember being completely, like, stumped. And I didn't know what to do. Because in my brain, I was thinking, well, if I color him brown, that's telling my mom that I don't want to be white or I like my dad more. But if I color him white... That's telling my dad I don't like him and I would like my mom more. You know, so it just was this really hard thing. And so finally I just said, screw it. And I took a black marker. My mom still has this picture today, but I literally drew straight down the face. One arm was black, one arm was white. One, mm. arm, one leg was black, one leg was white. Mm. Half of the face was black, half of the face was white. Mm. And I think that's kind of how I look at this whole scenario because... Um, you know, growing up as a mixed person, uh, if you take one side, depending on who you're talking to, they'll say, oh, well, you're just trying to be more black. Mm. Or, oh, well, you're just not trying to claim being black. Or, oh, well, you're just trying to be more white or not trying to claim your whiteness, you know, through all this. And uh, this is not a Christian song, but Logic, he's a he's a rapper, and he there in one of his songs he says, you know, in my blood, there's the slave and the master. Mm. It's like the devil's playing spades with the pastor, mm -hmm. and I, and I think like from a mixed perspective, you feel that throughout your whole life. I mean, there is so much hard uh, stories and beautiful stories as well, but also like where you came from and how those came together. You know, my parents didn't have a segregated wedding by choice, but it was very much segregated. Mm -hmm. um, and so the George Floyd thing to me uh, wasn't shocking. Um, you know, in high school, I was constantly getting pulled over. Um, college. Uh, my wife and my wife's family, uh, they didn't, they believed me, but they really truly didn't believe that it was happening. Mm. And, um, I used to be a youth pastor at a church here in Franklin. And, um, and so <laughs> my wife, she was, uh, she still is the worship pastor there. And we just got done with like a marriage conference and we were coming back to my sister's house. And I was like, hey, you know, my sister has a lot of kids. And I was like, you know, before we go in there, I just need to take a few minutes to clear my mind. Let's just kind of sit in my truck and uh, we'll just go to her pool in the parking lot, wait there for a little bit, and then we'll head to my sister's house. And and um, I don't know if you've been to a marriage conference, but sometimes they can just be really hard. <laughs> sure. So I was like, yeah, this is probably a good thing. And uh, one lady walked by my truck. And 
I don't know what happened, obviously, but uh, a call came in saying that a, a girl is being held against her will in a black man's truck. Oh, my gosh. And so me and my wife are just... Well, actually, she wasn't my wife at the time. We were engaged. Um, so me and my fiancé, we were just like talking and then little do we know we hear sirens and we hear lights and I was like oh that's crazy and then they're surrounding my car guns drawn and one guy's like running over to the side of like my wife in my fiance's car like ma'am it's okay we're here now you're safe and my wife's like what is going on I have a license to carry um and I was not carrying at the time so you know I, I hands on the wheel I you know keep my hands up from a from a minority standpoint or from a brown standpoint, these are just things you know. Hey, when a cop pulls you over, hands on the wheels, you know, there are certain steps that you just do that most people don't think about if you're Caucasian. And And I'll say that from my own experience from talking with my white cousin. So I'm not saying that white people never have talked about this, but just from my background, I didn't hear that growing up from the white side. It was always from the black side. Hey, when you run into a cop, these are the things you do. This is how you act. This is what you need to be aware of type of a deal. And I just remember sitting in my truck and I, you know, was very polite trying to tell them, you know, I don't, I don't know what's come over the radio or what you're getting on your computer, but we're about to get married uh, my sister lives here. We have the right to be here. And the cop just wasn't having it. Um, you know, he told me that uh, my kind can't afford houses in this neighborhood in Franklin, um, to which I said, that's not true. Uh, and I, my sister does live here. It's 72, you know, gave that whole thing. And he just wouldn't believe me. I asked him to follow me to the house, you know, whatever else. And um, What's your fiance doing during this time? she was just like talking to the other police officer saying, you know, this is harassment. Like I'm about to marry this man. Like I'm good. Like y'all need to leave us alone. And they just, you know, and, and I know this because I'm a firefighter. uh, And so when you're dealing with domestic abuse, a lot of times the woman will back the man. So they just thought it was like another domestic case. Like surely this guy, like this wife is just, terrified for her life and she's now trying to you know protect him and so they just weren't believing her and um and so finally they they kick us out of the the parking lot um because they said if i don't leave then you know i'm gonna get arrested and and i'm trespassing and doing all these other laws apparently that was breaking and so if you have big tires a lot of times when you turn they'll chirp uh, Mm -hmm. just from, you know, the rubber Mm -hmm. moving up uh, along the asphalt. And so, you know, I'm in a neighborhood, the speed limit's 25 there. We were, I mean, we literally just turned out and uh, my tires chirped. All three cars pulled me over again, took me out of the car, uh, told me that now I'm uh, being a nuisance to the neighborhood uh, had they have a noise violation against me now. Um, you know, now apparently all these things are are illegal with my truck, you know, all this other stuff. And the cop came up to me and said, boy, we are doing you such a big favor because we could be locking you up right now. 
but I just don't want to do the paperwork. Unbelievable. And for me, it was like, no, you're not locking me up right now because you can't. Like, I haven't done anything wrong. Um, and all you're doing is sitting there talking to your fiance for a few minutes before you go into your sister's house, which you've been there many times before. Absolutely. And, and, and there are many stories like that hmm. growing up. And, you know, I think it's easy for people to say, hey, well, you know, these guys were career criminals or this, that, and the other. And, and even if that's true, which I think there's a lot of uh, research and data that I could talk about that kind of uh, explain some of that. But even if, let's just say they are career criminals, um, I was not a career criminal. Uh, I've never done drugs still to this day. Um, I, you know, got good grades in high school and college, even being super dyslexic. You know, I, 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 there was not this moment. The only thing that I had quote unquote against me was my hair. Um, at the time I had dreads in high school, I had cornrows. Um, you know, so I definitely, you could say I looked apart, but at the same time though, once I give a cop my license and they run all this stuff, they see, hey, this guy doesn't have any type of record. Hey, this guy has a license to carry, which means he can't have a prior record. You know, you know, all these things should be entering in their mind as... Yeah. I mean, this whole thing brings up an interesting um, discussion that I've had, and, and I've been guilty of this. Well, it actually brings up two things that I want to discuss with you and get your feedback. One is... Um, I have had friends and families and, and just just in this discussion lately say, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, the more we talk about race, the more we make it big deal. You know, people say they're colorblind and sure. I'm not racist and all of this. And yet I think it's it really is sad to to understand and to fully acknowledge that there are people your experience is not unusual it happens all the time and so to right. say that this is not going on that police are just protecting our best interest there is blatant systematic racism in what you experienced and it happens hundreds of times a day across this country just by virtue of the color of someone's skin right that is real that is a real thing that we as people who who were by by virtue of the color of our skin that we're we were born with, we wake up every day with white skin or or whatever it may be. Right. And we never have to experience that our whole lives. Right. But you, just because you you know, were born with darker skin, you have to experience this, which is a sense of, and I can only imagine, of uh, anxiety, fear for your life right? just because you're a certain color. Yeah. And that's a reality. Um, so, so there's that. The other thing that I would acknowledge that I have been guilty of in the past, and I'm trying to not do it, is um, I had a guest on here, and she, said, she made a point, uh, Brandy Kellett, she's a professor, and she said, you know, um, part of systematic racism, an example is when a person of color does something we marginalize it and say they, and they put them into a group. When right. a white person of color does something, we individualize it and we say, 
he must have been having a bad day, or maybe he has a mental illness, or, you know, we individualize him versus when a person of color does something, we then say, well, they statistically do this, or there is a large portion of them doing this. So um, it becomes, it's not individualized. It's not maybe he was having a bad day, or maybe he's suffering some kind of issue or sickness or something. What do you think about those two things that I just thrown out? Is that, do you experience that to be true? Am I right? Am I wrong? No, I definitely experience that to be true. I I think for, for the first thing that you were talking about, as far as, you know, white people saying, hey, you know, this isn't happening or we don't experience this, so it can't be true. And I I guess to my, it's, I hate to say an argument to it because it's already placing me on a different side of the table than you. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I guess my, well, how I like to say it is my perspective, my view, if I could share it is X, you know, because I think that's the biggest thing that we have to really, when we're talking about uh, cultural unity or bringing people to the same table is we have to make sure that we're we're for each other because if we're not for mm. each other from the That's beginning good. then then you're never going to if you if you're coming into it thinking this is a fight right and not hey this is my friend who I just want to hear where he's at it doesn't mean you have to agree with everything but you know, I was ta- talking to my friend, um, he's in flight school, and, and most pilots are white. And, you know, right before I got into this program, my, my uncle who flies for United, he's an African-American pilot, and he said, you know, just be ready. Uh, you know, it is a good old boys club, so just do what you're told. He's a captain, and he still has, you know, the officers question him, making sure he knows what he's doing. Um, you know, and he's like, man, I've been flying for like 50 years. Uh, and also I'm the captain of this plane. I don't need you telling me what I am or am not doing right, you know? Mm. And so, uh, but I was talking with one of my friends and he was asking me these questions and I said, you know, maybe this, hopefully this would help. So from a white person's perspective, they don't see it. They experience cops being mean, um, but they just say, hey, you know, they're just having a bad day or they're just, just being a jerk. Yeah, you're just being a jerk, which is true. And I think there's a lot of cops out there that are probably playing uh, that role. I think there are a lot of, or, or there is not a lot, excuse me, of a racist cops out there. However, um, from, a, from a minority standpoint or from a, african-american standpoint if that's the majority of your run-ins with cops you don't get the benefit of saying well most cops are this way because even though that might be true those cops aren't pulling you over who are pulling you over are the cops who profile you who profile you and who want you know to make you a statistic all right and so if that's all of the running i mean again I get pulled over four times a year for things that I should never be pulled over for. I was driving in Franklin, had my guys, I have a landscape company and had my guys in the truck. This cop pulled me over in Brentwood and um, he said, Hey, did you know, uh, I, 
you know, um, your taillights out or something? And I was like, uh, no, my taillight, you know, goes in on and out when I have the trailer on. It's electrical shortage thing, whatever else. And he said, okay, well, um, that's really not why I pulled you over. Um, why I pulled you over is because I just found out that um, I have two minutes to live. What are you going to tell me to get me to go to heaven? And I, and I was like, wait, what? Like, what are you talking about right now? Like, this is a cop? I, this was a Brentwood cop. And he, I timed it. Um, we were pulled over for 53 minutes because he wanted to make sure that I knew that we have the power as God's creation to save people. And it's our job to uh, go to our families and to save them. Wow. Now, now that's an interesting use of taxpayers' money. Sure, and and you know people say, <laughs> well, there, that's not racist. Sure, it's not, but um, I seriously doubt that he would pull over someone um, who they think could do something about it, as far as work up the ladder and actually have the resources to file proper complaints. You know what I'm saying? He thought yeah. we didn't have the resources or whatever else. And so I, you were I, you were a project for him, right? And mm-hmm. so I think I think that's that's a way for me because for me, and I've told my wife this, and I said, "Hey, you know that I do the best I can to respect cops, and if I become a hashtag one day, or if I end up on the news one day, and you know." certain people are saying, watch the whole video. And then certain other people are saying, you know, (laughs) making me a hashtag or whatever else. Uh, Just listen to the voice recording. Mm. Every time I get pulled over, I set the voice recording on and it's in my pocket. So if I get arrested, I'll still have it on me. Um, Most of the time they don't take the phone away from you. I mean, they might sometimes, but they'll probably do that once you get back to the station. And I said, you know, you will have audio of what happened. Mm. And, you know, I think for me, the question I, I like to ask white people is, well, how many times can someone get pulled over constantly before it's okay to say, man, I'm on my way to go get some milk right now. Leave me alone. I'm not getting out of the car today. Mm-hmm. You pulled me over last week. You pulled me over, you know, two months ago, whatever the situation is, like, Leave me alone. Mm. Well, now, apparently, he's resisting arrest. All right. Well, what is he resisting arrest for? It doesn't matter. What matters is he's resisting arrest. Mm -hmm. And so now they have the right to go military on them, rip them out of the car, and then that's when you see the the bad footage. Oh, see there, he tried to attack him, whatever else. But if you're on your way to the store, if you're running around in the neighborhood, if you're going downstairs to go get... A soda. You know, these are all stories that have happened where black people have died. Where, where do you draw the line and say, you know, I'm 16 and I've already been pulled over X amount of times. I'm 47 and I've already been pulled over X amount of times. I'm done today. I'm, I know I should probably be way more polite than I am, but I'm done. I'm on my way to go get whatever. Leave me alone. I'm not getting out of the car this time. I'm not being polite this time. I'm not, you know, this time. And then that's the time that they get made a hashtag. We didn't see all the other times when they were doing what they were supposed to do. And why didn't we see it? Because they're being submissive. And that's a big deal. I think, you know, I was always taught 
if a cop tells you to do anything, I don't care if it's illegal, you do it. Hmm. And then we'll figure it out after there. Hmm. Do not disobey the cop. And I had a hard time with that because for me, it was like, that's just not my, that's just not how I operate. Um, And so I think I just like to share that piece of it. Mm, That's good. Because I think we only see the time where they got frustrated and they did things that they weren't supposed to do. But you don't ever see what's leading up to that. Correct. So, So for you, you do in fact get pulled over several times a year. Absolutely. For nothing, basically. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's good to know and good to hear. So, so what then do you say, because I, I've been dying to ask you specifically, living in a world and amongst siblings and a family of multicolors, when someone says these words, well, I'm colorblind, I'm not racist, I don't think race should have anything to do with it, everybody has the same opportunity. What, what is your response to that type of statement? I think it's very hard to be colorblind when um, I'm not colorblind. And, mm. and, I'm, and I'm not saying that because I think I'm better than. I mm-hmm. definitely don't. I do think, you know, I realized color when I was three years old. Mm. Um, realizing color is not just a good thing. It's how we move forward. Mm. Um, because when, when we say, well, I don't see color, what you're saying is, is I'm, I am choosing to ignore differences. differences because it might disrupt my social construct of what I believe to be true. And some of those things might be true, but some of them might not. But especially in the Christian community, you know, I, I talked on um, a podcast a couple of weeks ago and I said, you know, I, everyone wants to talk about black culture and white culture and you know, the Christian conservative, you know, or Black Lives Matter and this, that, and the other. And I said, you know, my biggest beef is not with white culture or with black culture. My biggest beef is with Christian culture. We, I believe, do the worst job when we should be the first ones trying to hear people out. We do the worst job trying to promote unity, trying to bring people to the same dinner table uh, when that's all Jesus did. You know, Jesus was not this white, blonde-haired-looking, blue-eyed person. Um, and so I, th- I think that's the hard part for me is because out of all the places on earth, you would think where there is a church every... I forget the t- statistic, yeah. but I mean, it's like... On every corner, basically. Basically. <laughs> Especially in the Southeast. Sure. It, you would think in the Southeast that there would be this, that that churches would finally say, hey, this is where we can lead the country and really promote love and unity. Um, doesn't mean we're agreeing with everything, but it means we're, we're willing to listen. Well, and, well, everything's become politicized. And absolutely. This mixture of religion and politics has gotten so thick that they're almost inseparable many times. And that, mm-hmm. and so you don't even know if you're talking about 
race and love, or you're talking about Republican or Democrat, or right. you're talking about right, left, it sure. just all becomes one big hodgepodge. And, you know, people like to pick their side and they don't want to be disloyal. And, you know, it goes back to the whole binary of I'm either this or that, or you have to be, you have to be this or that. And so, John, I'm going to, I'm going to, you got to tell me and I got to know, are you on my team or are you on their team? And, you know, that's just nonsense. And we won't get into that during this, during this podcast, but I, I still want to dig deeper into your experience of, okay, so now at this point in your life, talk to me about your love of racing and, you know, your experience with NASCAR and that whole thing. Right. Uh, we don't have to camp on it a long time because yeah. I, I want to get into your training to be a pilot now. Mm-hmm. Um, but talk to me a little bit about that. What, where did that come from? And, and just in the context of this race thing we're talking about, put, talk about that, that racing NASCAR in, the, in that context. Yeah, I mean, I only racing was a big passion to me from a race standpoint, no pun intended. Um, I don't know how I got involved in racing. My mom says I I literally came out the womb saying I was going to be a NASCAR driver. Hmm. Um, my family never raced, <laughs> uh, you know, but from the time I was two till the time I was nine, when I finally was able to go to a race um, in Kansas City, that's all I talked about. And my dad looked into it and you know, what most people don't understand about racing is it it is a pay-as-you-play sport, you know. So you today, Bob Hudgens, at a very ripe age, could say, hey, you know what, I've made a lot of money. I want to go have fun. I'm going to go to a NASCAR team. I don't know anything about racing, but I have money, you know, and I'm going to pay $4 million to race this next season. In the truck series, you don't have to have any racing qualifications, but if you are willing to pay to play, you will be there on Sunday. Hmm. Period. And so that that makes the politics of NASCAR really hard because the best guys in racing are not the ones on the circuit. They're the ones in, you know, wherever else. Uh, or the rich guys are hiring them to, to drive, which is that what we're seeing? I mean, I know you can't say in general, but like, Famous race car drivers, they're usually not the owners of the team, right? Or are they? No, they're not the owners, but their dads are most of the time heavily involved or their uncles are heavily involved in the companies that, relative, are, yeah. that are, you know, their sponsor. Um, you know, Dale Earnhardt was one of the guys who really did make it. Um, Jeff Gordon, you know, he had a really good setup from the time – he was born chase elliott you know uh, ryan blaney bubba wallace you know all these things they were going to make it to nascar whether you wanted them to or not um chase elliott his dad was a hall of famer he he had a semi truck you know carrying around like six carts when he was like eight years old Hmm. so if you and riley are showing up to go and race and have fun for a weekend and a father son thing. And let's say you did spend a lot of money, which would be a thousand dollars on your six year old kid. You're never going to win that race because there's a whole team helping the six year old out, you know? And so 
is a Chase Elliott or some of these guys good drivers? Sure. Um, they are definitely good drivers, but also if you give people infinite amount of money and if you still can't be good at it, then you really have to be really bad at it. Um, so, so what avenue were you trying to get in? I, I almost made it to the NASCAR circuit. I had three teams look into me. Um, you know, growing up, we never had the ability to race. And so what a lot of race car drivers do is online racing. They did this through coronavirus. It's called iRacing. And basically, you know, all these tracks are laser scanned. You can change thousands of things to the car. I mean, this this program reads you uh, the inner, middle, and outer temperatures of each tire, the, you know, how it's wearing, you know. So I don't want to nerd out on it, but it is extremely precise. And that's how you, that that's the poor man's way to race or to get really good. Alex Bowman that's why he's racing in NASCAR mm. today um, is because he's like one of the best NAS, the iRacing drivers and they finally gave him a shot. And so, and so NASCAR has a, a minority program, right? Correct. That, they, that they're trying to recruit people of color because, you know, NASCAR has looked so, you know, just be honest, it's been, it's a white man's sport for so long for the most part. Right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And so they, they started this program called, uh, drive for diversity back in, I think it was 2010. And, um, what they did was they, they, they started a race team called rev racing and they like to claim that Kyle Larson, Bubba Wallace, you know, all these guys came from rev racing. They did drive for rev racing. However, the they did not just happen to fall on Rev Racing's lap, and Rev Racing gave them a shot. Right. Um, they had money, and that's why they played. Um, so, you know, I got my degree in business administration. I love business, and I always knew I was going to make a run at NASCAR. I just wanted to have a degree. Um, and so... Uh, after I graduated college, <clears throat> I started a nonprofit called Thumbprint Racing, and it was the whole purpose of it was um, from my upbringing, you know, the the redneck rule country areas of America, and the you know w- which are under resourced and underprivileged, and in the underprivileged, under resourced areas in the inner city, they are so similar it's scary Hmm. um, just from what I've seen because both of my (laughs) families are from those places. And, you know, you saw this with little Nas. When you can bring both extremes together, then you get everyone else in between. Hmm. And that's why I shattered every single record, you know, out there. And so that was the whole, you know, I've been thinking about this literally since I was like 16. So almost 15 years ago. And, I just always knew that, yes, NASCAR looked so white. Uh, we had to leave the race early in Kansas because my dad didn't think it was safe because of what some of the other fans were saying to us. We were the only black people there that I saw at the time. Um, not saying we were the only ones, but the only ones that I saw in the stands walking around the garages, I just didn't see it anywhere. And my dad was just like, yeah, hey, we need to go. So we left and... I just always remember thinking, uh, I'm going to do this one day, and this is this is 
how I can bring people together. Um, you don't have to like me. You don't have to like the way I race. But at the end of the day, you're definitely going to know why I'm there. Hmm. And I think, you know, so the whole poor purpose of rev racing was that I truly believe that, you know, our this is based on facts, but, you know, your, your thumbprint is unique to you. Mm-hmm. So that's why we called it thumbprint racing because this wasn't about anyone else. This was about you specifically, whoever you are. And, and so no one in the past, present, or future will ever or has ever had your thumbprint. So what are you going to do to carry your legacy forward, whether that's in fashion, whether that's in, you know, audio engineering, you know, whatever your passions are, let's take these kids from under-resourced areas and let's, you know, find mentorships like someone like yourself. And, you know, if someone wanted to do podcasts and we would say, hey, well, you could help Bob Hudgens out and, you know, sure. you, you know, you help him. And you do so all this was things. more than NASCAR for you. It was way more than NASCAR for me. And how, and so how did that play out? I mean, not to go into a lot of detail, but you set that up, you mm-hmm. get going, you start tr- your time trials, all of that. Yeah. So we submitted all this to NASCAR. NASCAR actually reached out to us and said that they would be willing to uh, fund thumbprint racing as long as we did a few things that I didn't think uh, were ethically right as far as, you know, we had to promote a very specific uh, program in a per- per- specific narrative that I just kind of wanted it to be more of, man, th- these are people from minorities coming together right. uh, and learning and choosing to be friends because they found common ground. Sure. And um, so we submitted all this and the, the CEO of Rev Racing contacted me and said, hey, um, and this is almost verbatim, we love what you're doing. No one has come up with and also no one is doing what you guys are doing. You guys have submitted a business plan that actually shows, you know, the data of where we'd be making money. And you look good. You talk good, John. Um, We're not going to let you come and try out for the Rev Racing team because you're based on your times. We think that you would win. We do not want you to win because right now you guys do not have any money. You guys don't have any backing. Mm. Thank you for playing. See you later. Mm. So if you came with money, it may have been a different discussion. Absolutely. Yeah. And so then that was done. And, you know, that was a really hard time for me because, you know, every, a lot of people in this community, gen, I mean, really thought I was going to make it. I thought I was going to make it. Um, you know, we were talking with NASCAR teams. I knew NASCAR drivers. I was getting into places that I just never thought I'd be able to get into. And then all of a sudden it just stopped when all the signs were pointing a certain way. Um, and and to me it hurt so bad because this was something I was so passionate about. It had nothing to do with racing. It was always it was always about bringing cultural culture together and unifying them because I never felt unified. Mm. I was never black enough to be a part of my black side of the family. I was never white enough to be part of the white side of my family. And that was just such a hard thing for me yeah. growing up. And and for me, I was saying, dude, if, we're, if we can take the most Christian sport in America, which is the most white sport in America, and if we can bring people from all different walks of life together, give them a shot, not just behind the seat, but 
in being a manager, being an engineer. I mean, the, literally NASCAR was, I mean, covers every base mm. you could think of. Right, right. And uh, for that to be shut down, I mean, it really, it shattered me. Mm. Uh, because we just, this wasn't just a pipe dream. This was something that we had the data and the research to prove this was going to make money. Yeah. Um, well, obviously you got over it. Got over it. <laughs> yep. Got and over it. And then now your new endeavor is uh, a man of many talents. You're, what are you, almost uh, got your pilot's license and you're going to commercial flying? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that was kind of a whole deal. I needed to have a way of income while I was going through racing stuff. So I started a landscape company and which was awesome. And I was at a, it was last year, I was like 90 something degrees outside. And I was at this client's house and he came up to me and said, Hey, uh, you know, just, I just want to talk to you. You have really good work ethic, whatever else. So we started talking and I was like, well, what do you do? And, um, he said, well, I'm a pilot for American airlines. And I was like, wow, that is awesome. And he was like, I really think you should do it. And I was like, yeah, you know, like, I, I didn't know this guy. This is our first conversation, you know, outside of what we were going to do for him and landscaping wise. And he said, hey, well, here's a guy to go get your medical certification, see if you even qualify, go down there and see if you can get your first class medical because you need that to fly for the airlines. And anyway, I went and I passed with flying colors and, uh, Next thing I know, I'm training to be a airline pilot, and um, I'll finish up here in a couple months. That's awesome. Yeah, so I'm excited about it. That's great, man. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, one of the things that that keeps coming through all of this is, um, you know, your life has not been easy um, as compared to to so many other people. But you keep pushing forward. You know, you keep. You know, not not being scared to push the envelope, learn new things, um, and I think that that is admirable. So, so you know, kudos to you for that. And you know, despite what you may be facing from you know your race or anything else, what an amazing example of just a human being who continues to push forward and um, not let those things define you, um, but at the same time acknowledge them as real. And acknowledge right. them as things that have not only not defined you, but it, the other side of the coin is they have defined you. They have made sure. you. They, they've, they've formed you, right? Absolutely. I mean, I would never take back my life, but I also wouldn't wish it on anyone else either. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I love the fact that I'm mixed. I love the fact that I do get to uh, offer up a different opinion. Um, but also it's a very hard way to live as well. And so, you know, I think, you know, to tie it all back together, uh, one of the things you said was, is, you know, you had someone, you know, you'd have people say, oh, well, with when something happens to a white person, we'll, we'll attach certain identifiers to them. Individualize them. Yeah, right? and then we'll generalize with, and I've even seen that, in my own life, as far as, you know, people say, oh, well, you're, you're not like most black people. So I, I can give you a pass, you know, because 
if they see me or they talk to me, they say, hey, well, you don't fit the, the, the mold. So what I'm going to do is say, well, then you're just not part of the mold, but... You're not part of them. Yeah, and it's, and it's always them. And Which is interesting, too, because I think, again, this, this using the word systemic, which I know people don't like that, but, it's, but it is systemic because what we do many times, and myself included, as white people, is as a mixed person doesn't become identified with their white heritage. They nine times out of ten, a mixed person becomes identified with their black heritage, right? So, so you're not, so you're not like society doesn't see you as, oh, John's white. A cop sees you as say, oh no, John is dark skinned, therefore he's part of this, you know, whatever I think of dark skinned people, versus saying, oh, well, he's one of us. Sure. Right. And, th- and that's the hard part is because from a mixed perspective, you don't see it that way. Right. But that's how the world sees it. And then when you say, okay, fine, well, I'm going to defend from this position that you've, that I feel like you've cornered me into. Right. Then they say, oh, well, why aren't you trying to admit that you're black? <laughs> or I mean, mean that you're white. Right. And it's like, well, I never was not trying to admit that I was white. But the way I'm being treated is that apparently I'm completely full on black to right. y'all. Right. And so, and, and, I don't have any problem with being full white or full black. You know, I, one person told me, well, you, you know, black people can't say that white privilege is this because I didn't ever ask God to make me white and I never asked for this privilege. So you guys really need to stop with that. And my rebuttal to that was, well, did you think black people ever asked to be black or to not, or to live a certain way? You know, mm. that's not the, that's not the point of the conversation. Exactly. Like, that, that's not the topic of what this is about. The topic is, is it's real and exists. Yeah, and it's not to shame anyone. Right. You right. know, I, I just think the biggest thing is we all have bias. Yes. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I have them from being mixed. I know my black side of the family has biases. I know my white side of the family has biases. And all three of them are different. Mm-hmm. And the hard part, and this is where the work comes in, is we have to be willing to acknowledge the bias. That's where it hurts. Mm. You know, we have to be willing to say, okay, when I see a person of X or when I see a person doing this or that or the other, I automatically jump to this narrative. Right. And even if that is right, the majority of the time, you still have to be willing to say every case, every time, okay, that's a bias I have. Let's see, you know, what this guy's about. Let's, mm-hmm. let's dive in, not from a place of cornering, but from a place of understanding. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that is a very good step because there have been so much conversation about, oh, well, what can we do? You know, if, you know, if you want this to change, well, what do I need to do as a white person? And, I think for me, that's a great step, like <laughs> acknowledging your bias. And I'm not saying that black culture shouldn't acknowledge their bias. Sure. But, but if we do that, we're way more able to come to a, the table like me and you. You never feel offended. Right. I never feel offended. I know you have biases. You know I have biases. But at the end of the day, what matters most is Bob Hudgens is for me. John Hill is for him, vice versa. Let's have a conversation and see 
how we can grow together, how yes. we can yeah. help each other out. Yeah, I mean, that it sounds simplistic, and the whole goal and purpose of this podcast is for people to have space to tell their stories in a format and an environment that they feel safe and that we can explore our differences and the things we have in common. But at the end of it, just say, hey, we're two people that are kind to each other, we care about each other, and we don't have to agree, but um, let's talk. Mm -hmm. And I've always said, and I still believe this, that the way you get to change and transformation comes from sitting down and spending time with somebody that's very different from you. Mm-hmm. That's how you change your perspective on the human race. Uh, because we are, we do have a tendency to be around people that are just like us and to surround ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, there's nothing wrong with having a tribe that you feel comfortable with because we are all different. Right. But when you stay there and then you believe that that is the, quote, right way to see the world, sure. and the right way to think and the right way to treat people... That's when there's the problem. It's like, I believe it was St. Augustine, a famous quote, one of my favorite from him, he said, you know, the world is a book, and those who do not travel only get to read one page. Mm. And um, I think, you know, in the same way, you know, the human race is a book, and when you only are around one type, one color, one set of beliefs, um, you get to only read one page. So I'm more interested in reading the whole book. Uh, yeah, really getting to know other people. Yeah, and I, and I think too it's hard because in our day and age there are so many people who are capitalizing and making money off of. Uh, I like to just call them like one hitters. Yeah, you know they they'll post things that are very controversial just for the sake of that headline, mm. and I think if you know, I truly believe, and, and maybe this is completely wrong. I don't have any facts to prove this. Uh, I am not a, uh, you know, I'm not that smart of a guy. But I, I, just in my belief in humanity, I would even say that most Americans, black, white, Latino, Asian, whatever, you know, nationality, race, color, um, most Americans probably line up pretty close on a lot of topics. But with the way things are set up, you have to choose right or left. Right. And so then you have, then it starts pulling you, even if you're not, even if you're a little on the right or a little on the left, it doesn't matter because now you're far left or now you're far right. And I think that's, where we have to remember, you know, just because someone claims to be conservative doesn't mean all of it. Or just because someone claims to be Democrat doesn't mean all. And even if it does, even if they are all of that, that doesn't mean that they're not a human being. And that doesn't mean that they can't bring something to the table. Yeah. I think it's when we get into and, and into absolutes and saying our um, conservatism or our Americanism or our patriotism or our republicanism or being a Democrat is absolute truth. I think that's where we get into danger. What's absolute truth is loving another human being. That is the only absolute truth. Now, does that mean there's not right and wrong? Does that not mean there's good and bad ways of doing things? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
But what I'm going to die on the sword for of is, did I love another human being right. the best that I could, regardless of their color, regardless of their political persuasion, regardless, did I love them and treat them right. the same way that I treated someone who agreed with me right. or disagreed with me. So that's, I don't do that always very well, but I think that should be, in my opinion, our standard. Yeah, and it, and again, it's that bias thing. If you right. if you're willing to say, "Oh man, I I missed that opportunity," it's a new day. I get it. I get yeah. it. I get a new chance. And acknowledge that in yourself. One hundred percent. You know, the this but it's is, impossible to acknowledge it if you aren't having these kind of conversations sure. with people that are different colors, right. different socioeconomic, different religions, etc. Right. right. Yeah, and I, I I like to tell this story because I like even getting into pilot school, uh, I didn't have white privilege, and then at the end of it, my white privilege came into play. You know, I I have a really good credit score, don't have any debt, and they denied me of the loan for whatever reason. Now they said that I paid off loan, all my loans too quickly, which I didn't even know was a thing, and I'm sure it is. I'm sure there are bank banker people out there it's like you know that's actually thing um so i didn't know that and um i just thought i was doing good paying it all off quickly <laughs> and so then i called my grandpa he co-signed for the loan and they gave us the best rate that you could possibly get and so it's like that that defines like a mixed perspective like if i didn't have my grandpa i wouldn't have made it in hmm. but also I did make it in, so then how do I help people that are also like me who didn't make it in? You know, so it, it's this constant yeah. Yeah. Uh, deconstructing of like a of a truth that you think you're on when when you keep running up against this. You do have white privilege. You don't. You you are treated like a black person. You're not. Uh, you know, whatever. Basically fits the mold of whoever you're in to benefit them, that's what they'll see you as. Yeah. And that's not always true for a mixed person, but a lot of times that's true. And that's been, you know, a, a hard thing. And so, you know, I don't ever want people to hear uh, that I am not proud of being white or that mm. I'm not proud of being black. Um, I am, I am extremely proud of being both. And that's why when people ask me questions or say, hey, you know, seriously, though, like, would you say you're a little bit more black or a little bit more white? And <laughs> it's just hard. It's like, you know, do you walk more with your left foot or your right foot? Like, I just, it's impossible for me to say. It's impossible for me not to see the color. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, what I, what the color says to me is a story. Hmm. And if I don't see the color, I'm choosing not to see the story. And I feel like everyone has a story that's unique to them. And go learn it. Yeah. That's you know? Good. That's good. Well, thank you for sharing your story. It's been great. And uh, I think that's a good place to end on. Um, I usually ask if there's any, if there's any way that uh, people can get in touch or follow you. Um, is that something that you do? Social media? Has you got anything that people are, want, would want to follow you and reach <laughs> I mean, out I'll, to you? If, if you would love to reach out to me, um, most of my tags are just Team J Hill. Um, so you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, stuff like that. Uh, think even on Facebook. 
there's a page. If it's not Team J Hill, it's Thumbprint Racing. So, um, you know, you can find me through those avenues, and uh, I'd love to have conversations and whatever else. Well, thanks a lot for coming. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me. This was a great. Talk to you soon.